Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Um, sort of screw up, but it seems like everything's fine now. Um, so today, we're talking about T-tests. So, uh, okay. Why the hell did that before, but now it's just fine. Um, talked last time, I had a high probability to give a value of a variable. If the variable is normally distributed, you just turn it into a z-score, right? There we go. Uh, z is just x minus mu over sigma, right? It's just the amount of standard deviation units away something is from the mean. That's all it is. It's nothing special. It's stuff you know. It's stuff you've seen before. Probably better that way. Look up in a Z table, we're in business. No problem. Or you could use that little web tool that I, I had linked uh, from last time. Doesn't matter how you do it, it's pretty easy to do. It's pretty straightforward. Okay. Now, as interesting as this is, and I'm being sarcastic, we're usually dealing with means, not individual values, right? So, we talked, remember last time I did a thing, what's the probability of getting a score between, say, 3 and 7, or what was the probability of getting, uh, having an IQ score between, what was it, 120, 107, and 90? I don't know what the hell it was, but. Those kind of statistics practice questions that no one actually does in real life. What we're usually doing is dealing with means, not individual values. So instead of knowing the distribution of x, we usually care about the distribution of x squared, which is kind of what we talked about with sampling distributions, right? What are the values that x squared, like sorry, x bar rather, that x bar can take? Right? That's usually what we care about because we want to know how likely this mean is, not how likely a certain score is. Okay. Make sense so far? Okay. So there's this thing called the central limit theorem. Given a population with a mean mu and a variance sigma squared, the sampling distribution of the mean will have a mean mu, mu sub x bar equals mu, and a variance sigma squared over n. As n increases, this distribution is pro uh, pro approaches normal, no matter what the shape of the parent population distribution. No matter what the shape, and this is something we talked a little bit about, I guess, was the last time or two times ago, was that even if you had a binary distribution, you will get a sampling distribution. The sampling distribution of the mean, in other words, the distribution of all the values the mean can take, will be normal. No matter what the shape of the parent population distribution, it just doesn't matter. There is a proof for this, which I'm not going to go through because I can't remember it, to be honest with you. And I don't think it would help anybody. There is the intuitive thing when we, we went through the idea of looking at the distribution of the, of, of the means. Um, and we can think of it being, say, sexes, male, female, or we could go with flips of a coin. I'm assuming no one did my little sampling distribution uh, exercise of taking a die and rolling it 10 times, plotting out the mean and doing that 100 times. Yeah. One person has once in my whole career. This is the 20th time I've taught this course. 
one person once. Work though. As it increases, distribution uh, approaches normal. So remember, you have to have a mean. Uh, sorry, it's, it's with, a, with a given n. So the sampling distribution, the mean then looks like this. There's your sampling distribution mean right there. Mean of u sub x bar, which is just mu. And a standard deviation of sigma over root n. And it's normally distributed. These are the values the mean can take. That's the probability of getting that mean. And that's the value of that mean, with a given n. And it's just the number of observations. Okay. And that's all mathematically sound. Like I said, so we can talk about it intuitively. I've talked about it. Like I said, you could do a proof. I, I can't remember the damn proof anyway. I don't think it would help. You could also, if this doesn't make intuitive sense to you, pretend that you're Catholic and I'm Pope Dave the First. And I have the ear of God, and God told me this, so it's true. That's See, that makes sense, doesn't it? I wasn't meaning to offend any cat. Or anybody else. Okay? I kind of think it's going to poke Dave. That'd be good. They choose a name, right? I'm technically able to be elected Pope. Any baptized Catholic male. Now I'm baptized as a Catholic. I'm not really Catholic anymore. But it doesn't mean I'm not eligible. So I'm going to run a campaign next time. <laughs> New guy seems kind of cool. I'll give him that. But when I get elected, you're going to choose a name. I would choose a jaunty name like Skippy. Jaunty. <laughs> <laughs> or Chad. Pope Chad. Pope Chad the first, and I would wear a beret. <laughs> Or one of those really long toques that have the really long with the bo- and the pom pom at the back, <laughs> and, yeah. a, and a hab sweater. That's a, that's. And I'm not wearing that dress thing. I want a hockey sweater. Again, good. not trying to offend anybody. Pope Chad. Pope Chad or Todd would be another good one. Oh, Todd. All right. Questions about this. Okay, this is an important thing. You get this, you'd be in pretty good shape today. Like, it'll, it'll be okay. This isn't bold because it's weird. Right, but I kind of demonstrated that last time again with the, uh, uh, what was it, sampling distribution of, uh, of the mean with a binary variable, right? So, I have a question. Please. Sorry. Yes. So, uh, it says as n increases. Yes, it approaches normal. Yes. yes. So, if you have... Small n, is it less normal than Yeah, it's, it's not going to look normal if you have an n of like 3. It's going to look normal-ish, but it's not going to actually be the equation of the normal right. distribution. It starts to go very quickly, like an n of 5 is enough that you look at that and go, yeah, that's pretty close. 
And it's like at the end of five uh, round is a close enough approximation. The only should say 30 is a magic deal. It's this bullshit. 30 is not really that important. Um, at 30, it's dead on normal. But the approximation is good enough at like an end of four or five that you can use a Z table and not be frightened. Okay. Like, oh, you can, that the central limit theorem applies at say. Okay. Good question. Um, this is kind of powerful when you think about it because the population distribution shape doesn't matter. I don't know what that's for, therefore. I don't know what, what that's still in there. Right there. That's just a thing. It's extra. It's just a bonus little mark for you. Um, so the population distribution shape does not matter. What matters is random sampling. Though not as much as you might think. You say, well, we never do random sampling. When's the last time you've ever read a paper that actually used a random sample? Ever? No. Uh, polling uses a random sample, kind of. We typically don't, and it typically doesn't really matter. It's not that important, which is good because we don't ever do it. We don't use random sample of university students or humans, or even Algoma students, right? For like a project we're doing, you learn, you learn an experiment, you're doing your thesis, or you, some faculty members run an experiment. You're not doing a, you're not randomly sampling the student body, and if you did, you couldn't make people be in the experiment anyway. Hell, all the work I did with the chickadees, I didn't randomly sample chickadees. Well, I'm going to go find this one. No. It really doesn't matter as much as people think it does. So to find the probability of X bar, oh, see the probability, look at this. The probability of X bar, we use our old friend, the Z score. So all we're going to do is we're going to use, we're going to find a probability of a, of a, of a mean again, not an individual variable score, you know? So, which can use that score? Because it's still, it's normally distributed. I know, look, it's normally distributed. So we can use that. I know what the mean is. And I know what the standard deviation is. I could use a Z score. What are we finding P of? Probability of some mean. Okay. So let's say we have the IQ. Then what's the probability of, uh, if I sampled 10 of you, what's the probability of getting an IQ of, of, of greater than 100. Like something like that. So this actually changes a bit. The, the Z formula for the original Z score is on the left here, Z equals X minus mu over sigma. We're not looking for an X, we're looking for an X bar. That's the central limit. No, it's the central limit theorem. That's just, this, this is because of the central limit theorem. It's allowing us to do this. The central limit theorem was that thing saying, uh, given a mean with population, uh, with, with, sorry, with, with uh, variance sigma squared and uh, mean, mean mu, a random uh, sampling distribution of the mean will have a population, blah, 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 and remember what the shape of the parent population distribution. That's the central limit there. This is because of the central limit there. We're trying to find how likely a, a given mean is. Right? So here, so ignore the right half of the screen now. The left half of the screen says what? To find the z-score, in other words, the probability, because we use z-score to find the probability of a score. We take x, we subtract mu, and divide by sigma. But, but doesn't it just say in the central limit theorem, like, sigma is now, like, that? Yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's, that's all I was asking. Oh, okay, I thought you said that is the central limit well, theorem. No, it's well, because of the central okay. limit theorem. Okay, well, that's what I meant. Well, 
<laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> All right. Don't push me because I'm close to the edge. Trying not to lose my head. <laughs> okay. That's old school. That's, that's, that's the school that was built. They built the old, they tore that school down to build the old school on top of it. What? Money? Well, when I'm sarcastic to you, yeah. usually it's, ha-ha-ha, well. What? You always like say, <laughs> this, is getting, this is getting too... Too inside? Too inside. Okay. Yeah. All right, anyway. <laughs> we're gonna ha how likely is a mean now? Well, we, see, before it was a score, now it's a mean. And the standard deviation changes, because the central limit theorem, as Maddie Matt, sort of, in a roundabout way, pointed out, sigma over square root of n. So, do you remember when you learned this for the first time, and you thought to yourself, it's a gather set formula I have to learn? No, really, it's the same formula. We just, that's what this is, and that's what that is. We're just subbing into a formula, it's the same formula. Right? Unless Keo tells you it's the same formula. Does he do that? It's, it's kind of a hard thing to get around your head when you're just in second year after college. Questions? Does this make sense? So it's not magic, it's not a new formula. Here's an example. Let's say 25 subjects are given an IQ improvement course. I don't know. I make this crap up. I, it's so hard. Um, and have their IQs tested after the course. They end up with an IQ of 110, like a mean IQ of 110. We've got 25 people, 25 people. We have given them an IQ improvement course, which doesn't exist, by the way. Um, and their mean is 110. It's 110. Oh, that's higher than average. And if you were dumb and decided not to do a statistic, any statistic, you say, it works. Well, how likely is it to get a mean of 110? from 25 people? That's the kind of question, right? So, and by the way, we, the thing is, why do I use IQ? Because I know the mean in the population is 100 and the standard deviation is 15. It just is. The tests are built that way. We very rarely actually know, oh, excuse me, sigma. Okay, question so far, does it make sense? Decent example, kind of thing you'd be used to. So all I'm going to do here is do, as I said, the pluses and takeaways. Z equals x bar minus u over sigma divided by u n. 110 minus 100 over 15 root 25. Oh, look. This is good, so which is 5. 3 over 5. 10 over 3, which is a z score of 3.33. What is the probability of getting a z greater than 3.33? It's actually, I bet the table in your book doesn't even go past 3. Most tables don't. That's from my calculator that my son broke. It had Z and T built into it, and I could look it up, and Z of 3.33, the probability of that is 0.00043. Oh, 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 that is really unlikely. Holy crap, our IQ improvement course works. We should sell it. Wow. If only it wasn't just a made up thing that doesn't exist. So, when should you use this formula? Uh, exceedingly rarely, actually, because we have to. Know, what do we have to know? The, yeah. We got to know that. How often do you really know that? With IQ, you do. 
There are certain circumstances I've used a Z test once in my whole career. Because there are cases where if you've got a, a binomial, something where I know that there's only two possible values, um, I can figure out theoretically what this is. But it's very rarely that that's the case. Very rarely. It happens, but it's rare. So there's a, oh, God, I'm getting tired. It takes a lot of to make two classes in a row. It's also minus 1,000 out. There's a problem here. We don't typically, this Maddie led me into this, we don't typically know sigma for a population. It's just not something we know. There are cases, like I said, theoretically you can figure it out with a binomial uh, expansion, which is something that probably never happened to you. Um, and also you could, uh, it might be an, you might be working with IQ. Or sometimes industrial situations where they're, um, they've got machines and they're set to certain tolerances. Yeah, that'll be the case. But most of us are not going to be in that situation. Um, well, wait a second. The expected value of s squared is sigma squared, right? This is just, what this is saying is, this is an unbiased estimate of this. Remember that? Yeah, sure. Jesse, you look like you don't remember. No, you're okay? Okay. Is everybody's okay? Yeah. So what's, what's the again? expected value? Expected Anybody else want to start to smell that again? Yeah, yeah. Oh, maybe we can just sub s squared for the sigma squared. There's a problem. Damn it. Damn Russians. Actually, we have two sampling distributions to worry about. We have the sampling distribution of the mean and the sampling distribution of the variance. Oh, my God. And the central limit theorem doesn't tell us the sampling distribution of the variance. It's the sampling distribution of the mean. Damn. So we're going to have to somehow take into account that this thing's going to vary, too. See, this is a parameter. It doesn't vary. This thing's going to vary. It's not good. Shitty. Oh, we can get around that. Don't worry. The sampling distribution of S squared will change depending upon the variance. Why is that? Well, look, let's look at how do you calculate variance. Oops. Okay, that's, a, that's the formula, right? Some of the x minus x bars uh, squared over n minus 1. This is going to change. This sampling distribution, the values that s squared can take, will change depending upon the n. Morning. It has to. Look at the damn thing. You're dividing by n. It's going to have to. So we're going to have to take the n's into account. Somehow, some magical, mystical way. Mathematically, magically mystical tour. Hmm. Okay. That's something we can do. Well, I don't know we can do it, but a guy did. So we can't use Z. Because Z, is there any mention of N in the Z formula? 
No. In a Z table, does it, does it matter what, what the N is? No. So we can't, but we're going to have to take N into account, because if we don't, we're not... Get this to worry about. We calculate that, and you say, well, Dave, variance, sigma, you know, for the parameter is divided by N, yeah, but that's a parameter. Those things are fixed. This is going to vary. But you know what? Take a look at that. We know how it varies, don't we? It varies depending upon n minus 1 on the model. So we're going to use that. So we use what's called the t formula. t equals x bar minus mu over s divided by root n. Your old friend. He's like a comfortable shoe or a delicious glove. A delicious glove? Is this the normal T formula? That's the plain old regular vanilla T formula, yes. But it's got like the central limit thingies kind of What do you mean? I'm sorry. Well, it's got, it's got S divided by... Yeah, well, that's the, 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 the T formula has that, yeah. All the T formula is, is it's got a mean minus, a mean statistic minus a mean parameter over um, what's called the standard error of the mean or whatever the uh, standard deviation is for the sampling distribution. So in this case, and we can't use sigma because we don't know it. We can calculate S, though. We can calculate S. So T changes from, uh, based on the number of observations, doesn't it? You must, anybody here have their book on them? Yeah, pull out your book and take a look. If you got it. Take a look at, it, at the t-table. It changes depending upon the number of observations. So if you look, you'll see that if the number of observations are, well, it's basically degrees of freedom, right? And remember the degrees of freedom for this? It's the bottom, n minus 1. Well, in this case, for that standard T formula I showed you there, it's just going to be n minus 1, the degrees of freedom. So if you take a look and you see that the T value, the critical T value, the thing you have to exceed to find significance, changes depending upon the number of observations, which is what we use to account to, to calculate um, degrees of freedom. Right? So if you take a look at that, or when you get a chance to get home or whatever, take a, take a look at your book, take a look at your t-table, you'll see that it changes. It's not like the z. The z, you know what the critical value is for a z uh, to be greater than 0.05? One tail critical value is 1.645. It always is. doesn't matter what the n is. With t, it changes depending upon the number of observations. You'll also see at the very bottom, of the T formula or T table that it probably says for an infinite number of degrees of freedom, then they usually do. And if it does, it'll have the values that are exactly the same as the Z table. Because when you have an infinite number of observations, you now have the population. So it's the Z, which is kind of cool. Degrees of freedom to estimate sigma squared by calculating S squared. To be more precise, that's how it changes. We're going to ask, how many values did we fix? Remember, degrees of freedom are the freedom numbers have to vary. We fix a number. We fix one value. 
We say we have the mean in there. When we calculate this, this is here. Think about how powerful this is. I now don't have to know anything about the population. We start out by saying I have to know the mean of the population and the variance of the population. And now I'm going to tell you I don't have to know anything. I can just sample. The, the, the same logic behind this is the logic that says I don't have to know anything about this, the population, but if I sample properly, I can make a guess about how an election is going to turn out. It's the same kind of logic. I don't have to know what the average score for anything is. I don't have to know the variance, especially. Average score, you can usually figure that out. This is pretty powerful. Now, let's say we had a pairs of observations. A pairs? We had a pairs of observations. Pairs of observations are a special case. Pairs of observations are a special case. Because we just take one observation, one score, and we subtract the second one, and we get a different score. So x bar sub d. So if we got a score, I don't know, we pair people up, and we got like a 5, and a 2, and a 6, and a 1, and a 3, and a 7, and a 4, and a 0. So we go, we got 3, we got 5, we got negative 4, we got 4, we got 1. Right? So we sum all that together. So let's cancel. 1, 5, and 6, 3 is 9. So that subs to 9, 9 fifths is 1 point, so in this case, 1.8. Because I get the, the differences, I, add, I sum them, and I divide it by 5. And I've got the kind of skill to do that kind of math in my head. Because that's so hard. Not pointing. Okay. So that would be the case. We've, we've paired these observations up. We've paired these observations up. So x bar sub d is just the average difference. This is just the standard deviation of these differences. I guess I could try doing that. So here we've got what? So it's going to be 3 minus 1.8 squared plus. 5 minus 1.8 squared plus negative 4 minus 1.8 squared plus 4 minus squared plus 1 minus 1.8 squared all over 5 minus 1. I'm just doing the standard deviation of the differences. That's, that's why it's S sub D. And then I take the square root of that whole thing. So then I have to take the square root of this whole quantity. 
and that would give me the standard deviation of the differences. Could you also find like both standard deviations and subtract them? No, it doesn't work that way. Standard deviations don't subtract. That's the sort of interesting thing. They actually, it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. Okay. No, it simply doesn't work. Variances are weird. They don't ever subtract like that. Um, I guess that's why it's like its own value. It's its own value, yeah. Whereas, could you find the mean of these and the mean of these that give you 1.8? Well, if you subtracted them? Yeah. I think it should, eh? Yeah. Yeah, but variances don't happen. Okay. So which also means they don't subtract. Yep. And the square root of n, now I know we have 10 observations, but we've paired them up. We've paired them up, so we actually only have five observations. Because the numbers don't know where they come from. The numbers don't know they were calculated. They have no idea. Don't give the numbers extra conscious powers they don't have. Okay. Does that make sense, what happened here? So you might say to yourself, self, Why would you have pairs of observations? Well, you could back people up. Let's say we were doing, uh, it was a blood pressure drug we were studying, I don't know. A lot of times it's done with physiological stuff. We can't do before and after if it's the same person, it's great. If this is before and after, perfect. The logic makes complete sense that we got one person. There's going to be a different score. But what if we're going to match people up? Uh, we have to match people up on something like, let's say, blood pressure. We do a blood pressure uh, test. So uh, you and I go together because clearly it almost exactly the same blood pressure. <laughs> and then you guys together, and you guys, and you guys, and you guys back there. There's five pairs right there. Two, three, yeah, whatever. Because we've measured in advance, and we know that our blood pressure is almost exactly the same. That even means I'm in very good shape when you're in real trouble. <laughs> You get the blood pressure for a 50 year old. You've got to be careful when you match, because now, and this is why I was making this point, we're the same on blood pressure and different on everything else. They're now different on everything else that you've not matched on. So you've got be, to be, think to yourself this better be so damned important that I'm going to match them up like this. But you would use this before and after kind of thing is great. So if I was doing a case, doing a kind of thing where I was saying, how is, what, what are you doing before and after some, uh, uh, some treatment, you, you would use this for sure. Nice, easy technique to use, has a lot of statistical power, works pretty well. Questions about that? Okay. What if we have pairs that aren't matched? Which is what we usually have. We usually have. Maybe we have two populations. Could be. Well, the hypotheses that are a bit different. Because what was the hypothesis here? The hypothesis with the, the, the matching one is that... Is this. Or were these... Right? So their, their HO was that mu sub D equals 
uh, 0, and your ha was mu sub d is not equal to 0. Right? Because if they were equal to 0, that means they're the same. There's no change. Right? But here, because we've turned two sets of scores into one score. Nice. In this case, we've got two groups. Two groups. Um, the hypotheses here are a bit different. It's HO is mu1 is not equal to mu2. Batting, I saw mu2 in, London, in, uh, in Montreal in 2010. It was great. It was u2. Um, yeah, it's a u with a little tail thing. Damn Greeks. Complicated words, moussaka. It's kind of Greek food. Um, HA is mu1 is not equal to mu2. In the lock, in abandoned lockers, places like that. Nothing was damaged. Yeah. We didn't burn anything. We didn't lightning on fire. No code reds. And have code reds when I when I was young. School was safe. So there's your null hypothesis. Your alternative hypothesis here. Um, now, the original T formula, if you remember, is this, right? We just saw it a little while ago, which is x bar minus mu over s divided by rho n. This is what we've seen before. You now know it, you love it, you can't live without it. There's the statistic. There's the null hypothesis. There's some measure of error. Statistic, you got something with the null hypothesis and the error. Okay. And you're saying, let me let each O. Well, that other one with this, like with it. There's nothing there but the HO. Actually, there is. It's minus zero. Because if there's no difference, we expect this to equal zero. But you don't put in x bar sub d minus zero because you look like an idiot. Like, why would you put in minus zero? Well, for a sense, it's completeness. That's <laughs> <laughs> the only reason you do it, right? Yeah, it's understood to be there, but you're not subtracting anything, so you, just, you, know, you, don't, you typically don't write it in there. That's why you sometimes get stats questions saying, uh, Mesh Parish P test was used. Uh, the null hypothesis is they would differ by four points. That never happens in the real world. Because then you have to remember, oh, I see. X bar sub D minus four. It doesn't happen. So we get the stat. We got something about the HO. We got something about error. 
So that's the general thing we have here. So let's figure this out. We get x bar 1 minus x bar 2, subtract mu 1 minus mu 2. What? Where'd that come from? Well, think about it. Our HO is this, right? Is mu 1 equals mu 2, correct? That's our HO. Well, we can't have an equal sign here. That would be weird. Wouldn't make any sense. What we can do, though, is say that if we took this one over here, like that, ah, so that's all we know. So I've not, I got HO in here. I got the statistics we've calculated here, and something about the error. Now, practically, again, this minus this equals zero. So we just call it zero. We, we just leave it out. Again, it's understood to be there, but we don't worry about that. I'm not sure it's recording with that mic. Hello? Hello? Is it? Yeah? Okay. No. Like it spikes. It spikes when I'm... No, I mean, does it spike now when I'm talking like just like this? Yeah. Hello? I'm ready your ear right now. How are you? You enjoying statistics? Okay. Um, Maybe the weirdest podcast to listen to. <laughs> Most of you have heard of the other ones I've done, you know? I got one where me and two guys just drink and talk about stuff. I got two like that, actually. Usually it's just me drinking. Um, we got to do something with the error, because we can't just have the word error at the bottom. We could, then we go, okay, what's E, what's R? So is it E times R cubed times O? No. We gotta have something here. Okay, the error's weird. And Maddie kind of had a, when you said, can you add the variance or subtract the variances? What you do with variances is very weird about them is you weight them by the number of observations and yet can add them. It's strange. It's just part of the way variance works. So variances have to be weighted by the number of observations because if you have different numbers of subjects in each group, well, just think about this, ignoring the, ignoring these, these. If we have more subjects in one of the groups, it's going to have, it's going to be smaller number. Right, because how's variance calculated? That's still the best, right? Over here. Or standard deviation, whatever, that's variance. Ends on the bottom. So we have to weight it by n. So we're going to divide it by the number of observations. That's all we're going to do here. So we end up with that. Again, it's a whole other T formula. No, it's not. It's the same damn thing. It's just statistics minus null hypothesis, which is here. Because it's zero, divided by error. So we really have the same formula all the time. We just subbed in different values for the statistic, for the null hypothesis, and for the error. And in fact, it's, this is really, really related to the Z test. At the beginning, we talked about that. And this is when, when Gossett figured this out back in the early 1900s. Um, this was a revelation for statistics. Because it used to be you couldn't do anything without knowing the population variance, and you never knew it. And Gossett, who worked for Guinness, 
He was a statistician working for a brewery. It's a good job. In Dublin, Ireland. He published this, but he published it. They didn't want him to publish his work under his own name. Because scientists in Berlin, of course. And he was, um, whatever these Guinness scientists would publish under their own names, other breweries would sort of snap them up. It's like, oh, I know this, this guy's smart, let's get him. So they made him publish under the pseudonym Kurt Student. So it's called Student's T-Test, even though his name was not Student. His name was Goss. Kind of cool. So yeah, go ahead. When do you use this? This, this is when you have two, two groups, two groups, and they're not matched. Independent. Okay. Yep. Right. Yeah. You want to call this independent sample t-test? Is very often. This is called. This is sometimes called a correlated t-test or a dependent sample t-test. Right, okay. Why is it a dependent sample? Because the scores depend on both score sets of scores. Yeah, the the final scores you get, which are these. You can have different ends. You can, yeah. yeah. Okay. You couldn't have a different name here because yeah. you know, one's subtracting another. If you don't have the other part of the pair, you throw the data. Yep. Yep. And you can only use this under very specific circumstances. Mm -hmm. This you could use. You can even use this under these circumstances, but it doesn't have as much statistical power. Now, what if the variances aren't equal? You said, Dave, well, the variances are never going to be equal. Well, How not equal do they have to be before we have to worry? Well, rule of thumb is, is one variance four times bigger than the other one. A lot of people use that. Then we change this. And we, what we do is we, call, we pool the variances. What we're doing is we're getting an average value for the variances. This is a real pain. This is the kind of thing. This happens in... Um, like statistics tests in second year, right? 21, 26, to make you calculate this pooled variance value? Don't worry. So you only pull the variance if your two variances are... One's like four times bigger than the other. Okay. What you should do... Well, what I was taught to do was to do a test to determine if the two variances were equal. Oh. Are they statistically different? So first you do that test, and then if they are statistically different, you do this. The thing is, that's a little bit too... liberal, let's say, with, 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 with the way the world works. You should be more conservative than that. One is four times bigger than the other one. You should just say, done with it. We're good. We're going to check. The nice thing is now, in fact, there's even a further way to do this that doesn't involve pool variances, and I'll talk about that in a sec, because I don't know the formula for that. It involves all kinds of crazy matrices and stuff. But there is another way. This isn't that hard to do, and I hope, you know, theoretically, or at least sort of intuitively, you can see what happened here. Is we're just weighting it by the number of observations and dividing. We're getting an average variance. That's what we're doing. A weighted average. It's like I weight your, your averages for your grades. The quizzes don't count as much as the homework, and the homework doesn't count as much as the test. The test doesn't count as much as the final. I multiply them times various little constants. How many degrees of freedom do we have here? For this t-test, how many degrees of freedom do we have? 
How many? Just two. If we always had two, we would never have to change anything in the formula. So it can't just be two. Because what you're saying is that it's always going to be wouldn't work, right? It's going to change depending upon the number of observations. The two part is part of the answer. Remember, two part, he was killed, but then there's a lot of rumors that he's still around. Thank you. Um, how many? How many values have we fixed? To calculate this, remember, it's always about how many values did we fix to calculate the stuff on the bottom. Well, normally, with the regular old t-test, how many value, How many do we have? How many do we have here? Number of observations minus one. Well, how many do we have here? How many observations do we have? Two sets. How many observations do we have? We have there are two sets of them. Yes. How many total observations do we have? N one plus N two. How many degrees of freedom have we lost? Josh, how many degrees of freedom have we lost? Two. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so it's this. That's how many degrees of freedom. Okay. Because we fixed two values. We fixed the mean in here, and we fixed, sorry, in here, and we fixed the mean in here. So we fixed two means. We have n1 plus n2 observations. We lost two degrees of freedom. Now these t-tests have assumptions. Statistical tests have assumptions. Um, basically, for all the math to work out for these things that, that's behind this, there's a great deal of calculus behind that we need to worry about. There's a lot of calculus behind it. So, and those of you that have done higher level math know that you start out doing anything with a proof and you go, okay, assuming this and assuming this and assuming this, I can solve it. It's the same kind of thing that's happening here. So assuming we have a simple random sample. Wait, we don't really have to worry about that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We can violate the shit out of that assumption. And we do all the time. Uh, how do we know we can violate it so severely? We can actually do that now with computer simulations, uh, doing things called Monte Carlo experiments. Monte Carlo experiment is really just running a bunch of sets of numbers a bazillion times. And usually we didn't have the computer power to do it. We can do it now. You could run a million of these things in a, in a couple of minutes. And it turns out that it's so close to what would happen if you had a random sample. It doesn't matter. So you can violate the crap out of this subject. Well, we can't violate that one. Independence of observations. This is the key. You cannot violate this assumption. What that means is, if I know Maddie's score, I don't know Josh's score. And if I know uh, Dave's score, uh, I don't know, I don't know Emily's score. doesn't matter. I can't know that. Like, that can't happen. One score cannot depend on another score. You say, wait a sec, Dave, what about... Over here with the different the, the difference one with p-test, you know, correlated sample or dependent sample p-test. Yeah, both sets of scores depend on each other, but that final score we get, the difference within me has no effect on the difference within Carl. So this you cannot violate. When you violate this, you can't 
Start over. Do the experiment again and do it properly. How, how would you violate that kind Well, the sort of classic thing you can think of is if you were sitting beside each other and following oh, each other's papers. Okay. But even think about this. this. These are about independent events because it's about sampling. Okay? Now, there's nothing in the T formula about except if it's Thursday, something like that. There's nothing in the T formula that says, well, the first score is this, which means the second score will be this. There's an assumption built in that says that each one's an independent event. They're like the coin flips. You couldn't, it's not like you don't have a fixed coin. It's like you have a fair coin to begin with. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often. If, and if this, is all, this all comes down to experimental design. But you have to be careful about it because sometimes, you know, they may not be independent. You also need homogeneity of variance, meaning the variances can't be too different from each other. You can violate that pretty severely too. Not too badly. If you violate this too far, um, the, the thing, what happens when you violate homogeneity of variance assumption, and you say, Dave, you said, with, you know, one's four times bigger than the other, and why don't we just pool them? You can do that, but you start to get to a point where the test becomes more and more conservative, and you start making type 2 errors. You start missing stuff that's actually there. The good thing is, you don't make type 1, it doesn't make type 1 errors happen. It's not like you say things are there that aren't. So violating these two assumptions, that's okay. Like it's like, okay, we can violate them. All it's going to do is make it harder for us to find a difference. Why did I say that like Guy Fieri? Mm. Drivers, drivers, and ducks. Here's a tea test covered in gravy, <laughs> deep fried, southern style. This tea test is money. We're taking statistics downtown. Um, you can violate this to a pretty good point. If you violate it too far, though, there are other procedures you can use. What's the problem with having variances that are too different? It's just an assumption just... behind the math. Okay, that's, okay. that's really all I can say there. I mean, that's um, fine. It, because the, the null hypothesis, all of the math is based on the, on the null. Okay? You want, there, there is a fourth assumption. There's always an extra assumption that I don't talk about in every statistical test, and that's the null hypothesis is true. Okay, but as long as you've kept all of these and it doesn't work out and it goes less than 0.05, you go, oh, I must have violated an assumption. Oh, I know which one it is. The null hypothesis isn't true. The null says that, says that, right? Same population, through the same population, they have to have the same variance. Yeah. But you can violate that pretty severely and be okay. If you violate it too far, you have to use a different kind of test. You have to use something called a non-parametric statistic, something like a Wilcoxon rank sum test. It's something that it's easy to do. It's no one does them anymore. Which reminds me of just something very funny when I took an introduction to statistics at Western when I was an undergrad. A student said. It's just, you know, people mispronounce words sometimes, and it's funny. And they, they're bad mispronunciations, you know. Like people saying nuclear, things like that. But this girl put her hand up and said, In the Waxicon test, and it's Wilcoxon. And I just found it uproariously funny, and I started just laughing my head off in class. And it's not really very nice. 
<laughs> but I always remember that. Because she kind of talked like this. Like, you know my dumb guy voice? She kind of talked like that. In the walks of contest. <laughs> that was really mean of me. It's very mean. My but, favorite was uh, when someone said phallus memories instead of false memories. <laughs> yeah, but they don't know what the word false is? Or what the word phallus is. <laughs> but false, I mean, F-A-L-S-E. I know. Was it a, maybe an international student? You know, because I wouldn't read, I don't know, Portuguese very well. I don't well. think so. No? <laughs> Just kind of a stupid student? Is that what you're saying? Maybe? Okay. That's awesome. Yes. Well, what about the first memories? <laughs> uh-huh. I'm going to leave now. Uh, I'm going to remember that from now on. Right. Okay. Questions about T-tests? This is all stuff you've done. We've now finished 21-26 in two and a half lectures. Basically. All right, um, sure you got no questions? We can certainly stop now. I have a problem with that. Yeah, some of you look tired. Some of you have been sitting in that same chair for the deep classes. So, uh, that's enough of that. Let's go. You don't know what there's something that I've got to say.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.